Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Starting to get hot here in Texas, probably in Florida as well. So um, I expect my irritation level to to go up because you know as it gets hotter, I get more uh, more irritable. And uh, I try to keep that under control, Charles. One of the things I don't uh, I don't like about our politics is that we are expected to consider other Americans to be our enemies, not people who disagree with us, you know, not people who see the world differently, not people with whom we have strong moral disagreements, but are but our enemies. And I think that's unhealthy. I don't like thinking of people that way. I also think that with a few exceptions, you know, this tendency to think of people on the other side as being, you know, evil is uh, is unhelpful and, and wrong. And then on the left, there's a real tendency to describe conservatives in terms of mental illness. You know, was it right wing uh, authoritarian syndrome or whatever this nonsense is? And I think all that stuff should be resisted. But uh, someone sent around a link. uh, Maybe I got from Jack Butler um, to a Joan Walsh piece in the uh, nation. and she wrote that she had attended some um, row protest outside the home of, I guess it was Sam Alito. And the crowd was screaming and chanting, F you Alito. And uh, she wrote that she was in such a blur of rage and grief that she cannot remember whether she did that or not whether she joined in the the FU chant. And um, setting aside the whole question of the weirdness and creepiness of going and standing outside people's houses and screaming obscenities at them and their families, if you're so upset over a draft of a court decision that you literally cannot remember what you did, I guess yesterday in in this particular case, she wrote it on a Tuesday and she was writing about a Monday, um, you've got problems and it's not politics. You know, if you are so beside yourself that you literally cannot remember your own actions. This is not about politics. This is about something else. And you need counseling. Yeah, I can't think of a time when I can't remember how I behaved that didn't involve... Going out with me. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, there, yeah, there have been some times where I've drunk too much and you have a slightly hazy memory. I, I don't mean that in a dangerous way, but uh, I mean, maybe when I was, you know, 19. Was that French restaurant in Las Vegas we went to? Oh, well, that, that place was Bardo. amazing. Yeah. That place yeah. was amazing. No, but but I, I can't imagine getting so worked up. I mean, I was trying to think of the circumstances in which I have gaps in my memory. One of them is when I've been literally unconscious in surgery. Yes. And that's a weird feeling because you really just, your entire, it's not even like being asleep. I mean, it's like being dead. You just have this gap. Um, and then I suppose I have pushed it with alcohol a few times. And and you look back and you think, I hope I didn't say anything rude or <laughs> mm-hmm. do anything embarrassing. But I mean, firstly, not really recently. And second, driven by politics? Come on. Yeah, I care a lot about the issue of abortion. Me too. And um, if anything, the emotional reaction should be stronger on on the pro-life side, right? Because if you take everyone at their word, 
um, what the, the pro-choicers think here is that this is going to possibly permit some statutory limitations on bodily autonomy, whereas pro-lifers think this is about dismembering living children. So you would think we would have actually a more visceral uh, emotional reaction, but that's not really been the case. But yeah, I get I get all sorts of cheesed off about things in, in politics from, from time to time. I, I've never been like shaking with rage and grief to the extent that I couldn't remember where I was or what I had done. No, and I read your post and you've just re- recounted it for our listeners. And, you know, reading what you wrote, I thought this is why I hate mobs. Yeah. I mean, this is why I hate mobs. It's why I think they're so destructive to our politics and to our culture and to reason. Because if that's what mobs do to people, and I've never joined one, so I don't know if it would do it to me. Mm. But if that's what mobs do to people, then they're really dangerous. Yeah. I mean, that's and why that's the riots... attraction of mobs, though, is that it gives you a chance to divest yourself of yourself, of your own personality and your personal responsibility. Yeah. But that's how riots start. Yeah. I mean, if that's, that's really what, what she felt, then, you know, I'm not saying she would have done this, of course. She almost certainly wouldn't. But what's the difference in theory between saying, I don't know, I lost it, my brain went blank and I chanted this, and I lost it, my brain went blank and I threw a Molotov cocktail through a window? Yeah. There's a scene in uh, Chicago where the woman's talking about killing her husband. She's in the kitchen uh, cleaning a knife, and he runs into it. He ran into it 27 times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, people um, are looking for an excuse. Um, I often think, though, one of the things that I see in our politics, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, something I get into a lot in in Smallest Minority, is that um, the hatred precedes the issue. You know, it's we hate these people. These people are our enemies. We think of them as our cultural opposites. We're tribe A, they're tribe B. And then the reasons for hating the people are sort of backfilled in. And um, and it doesn't really even matter how plausible they are. I know we've, we've mentioned this a little bit, that when you talk about abortion, you are often uh, accused of being some sort of, you know, Roger Chillingsworth, oh, yeah. puritanical religious fanatic, when, of course, you're you're a misguided atheist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think this one is is interesting in that it maps onto our politics. It creates strong feelings, but it doesn't seem to create the sort of strong feelings Joan Walsh is describing in most people in either direction. In that it still doesn't rank that highly on people's list of primary concerns. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's it, maybe it should. Um, the thing we're I about have, to talk about does. Yeah, and I have strong <laughs> views on it, and and I do think it's killing. So it it's important to me. Yeah. But it's interesting watching the protests that have uh, come to fruition as a result of this this leaked draft, and also watching, say, the March for Life, which is admirably peaceful. You know, there have been times when pro-lifers haven't been peaceful. They've killed abortion doctors. Um, but the March for Life is is not rude or, or violent. 
but it also exhibits a passion about the issue that that I share, but that most people seem not to. I mean, yeah. it's it's just fascinating to me that that the the vast majority of Americans sort of equivocates and falls somewhere <laughs> in the middle. One last thought on this issue, and then I mentioned in my newsletter, but um, maybe worth uh, repeating, is the um, you know targeting of Catholic churches, uh, you know, for protests and in some cases desecration and such. You know, I'm Catholic. I know a fair number of senior church officials and interviewed them and spent time around them and that sort of thing. And I wish the clergy inside those churches they're protesting in front of actually were as pro-life as their dogma suggested they should be. But that is not actually the case, and uh, certainly not the case for the congregations. I was joking, you know, if you really want to go protest in front of a church that's full of committed pro-lifers, you find yourself, you know, a PCA Presbyterian church or an African Methodist Episcopal church, something like that, where people actually are uh, committed to the issue in the uh, great majority. Yeah, before we move on, that reminds me of something I read in the New York Times two days ago, which was a conversation between Gail Collins and Brett Stevens about abortion. Always edifying. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, it really should have been a conversation between Gail Collins and Ross Douthat, given the topic, because then you would yeah. actually have had an argument. But anyway, it was a conversation between Gail Collins and Brett Stevens. And at the beginning, Gail Collins said, and I quote, so we have a Supreme Court that's imposing the religious beliefs of one segment of the country on everybody else, which is deeply, deeply unconstitutional. Yeah, she's How so useless. How many mistakes could you make in one sentence? There's no imposition here, as you've pointed out. There's nothing being imposed. What was imposed was Roe. That was the decision that was applied to the country. Wrongly, in my view, wrongly in the views of most people who've looked at the question, honestly. This would be reversing the imposition and leaving the question open once again. The religious beliefs. This isn't a religious belief. There are people who have religious beliefs who have strong views on abortion. But Roe v. Wade was a legal decision. Nothing in that Alito draft opinion is religious. There's nothing theological about it. One segment of the country on everybody else has the same problem as imposition. And in the end, which is deeply, deeply unconstitutional. I mean, what an ironic thing to say about one of the worst recent Supreme Court decisions in American history. Yeah. Does she really think this is a First Amendment question? If she does, Maybe. how on earth is she in the position that she's in? Uh, yeah, there's sincere stupidity and insincere stupidity and it's all stupidity i suppose but i think she's sincere that's a pretty useless page in general i mean i like ross i like brad um i like frank bruni's column um although i guess he's semi-retired and uh but it's a pretty useless page for being the most important newspaper in the country you would think they would have a better op-ed page i decreasingly like brad stevens well, fine. I mean, I think he represents a particular point of view that is worth considering and that it's, you know, well-written generally and well-reasoned. No, I think uh, it's Not lazy. always, not without a... You think? think it, well, that, that's why I decreasingly like him. Uh, it's not that I agree with Russ Daffert on everything, but he's rigorous and interesting. Especially his movie reviews. 
Absolutely. Don't agree with those at all. But <laughs> Brett Stevens, to me, anyway, I don't want to turn this into an anti-Brett Stevens thing, but you go read the Gail Collins-Brett Stevens conversation and see if you are in any way edified by it. Yeah, possibly not. Uh, you know, I know you are a libertarian-leaning guy, but you are not a libertarian libertarian in the you know mary rothbard no cultish kind of sense and those people have a religious commitment to uh sound monetary policy wow they're right about sound monetary policy (laughs) i agree although maybe the gold standard's not the right way to do it but um i'm a big fan of sound monetary policy and that is one of those things that people kind of forgot about because we got it right for so long and now we have problem inflation and people are upset about it imagine that yeah so i think it is deeply embarrassing for the institutional left and the Biden administration that i saw this coming and they didn't because i'm not an economist i can barely count but it was (laughs) obvious to me that this was coming and that the party line two trillion dollar boondoggle that the Democrats passed in March of last year was going to make it worse, and that Larry Summers was not issuing his warnings out of some sort of mindless fealty to the Republican Party. Yeah, Here's an argument I don't understand before we talk about the, the present effects of inflation. You mentioned the last 40 years and that we had got it right. So yeah. from what I understand, one of the reasons that the inflation doves were so dovish this time around was that 10 or so years ago, the last time there was a warning about inflation, it didn't happen. I think that is the stupidest reason for dovishness I've ever heard. Because although it didn't happen, the position that the hawks took was the sensible one. Mm -hmm. And you can't have an approach where you say, well... If we're hawkish towards this terrible threat and then it doesn't materialize for once, we don't have to worry about it ever again. I mean, what's this? Yeah, and I think they also should have made more allowance for the fact that I assume you're talking about the financial crisis, yeah. 2008, 2009. Um, that it's just a very different economic situation, that a you know, crisis in the credit markets as destructive and bad is that can be, is just a really different thing from economic production actually stopping and trade being interrupted and, um, you know, problems in the actual physical real-world economy that can't get quickly sorted out through the operation of super-efficient financial markets. You know, when you've got a factory that's been shut down for six months, that stuff didn't get made. And uh, that's going to have, you know, long-term economic effects. So when you've got interruptions in production and then you flood the market with, um, you know, cheap money and free money, um, you're going to end up with um, inflationary pressures that should be something that would at least give you a sense of caution. That would not have you saying, ah, it didn't happen last time. We haven't had real inflation in 40 years. It's never going to happen. But but I, I see it as a form of utopianism and a belief in the perfectibility of man. Right. It, 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 it could not possibly be the case, could it, that smart or ostensibly smart people believed that we had overcome this problem. 
mean, it, it reminds me of, of studying the lead up to the First World War when I was at university. And you read these well-intentioned and extremely well-read people who would argue with a straight face that we wouldn't have a major war because we were past that. Yeah. And they would say things like, well, we all thought there might be a major war in 1905, but it didn't happen. And I think this shows that we as a species <laughs> have eradicated come, come on. So, you know, well, no, it was not a problem for the Republican Party and conservatives and other economists in 2008, 910 to say maybe we should uh, take a, a, an austerity based approach because the problem they were trying to mitigate against, even if in that particular case it didn't raise its ugly head, is a disaster as we're now seeing. You know, there's a sort of interesting social psychology at work there that, um, Maybe I should read some more on, but, you know, all of us in um, 99% of the things that we do in our life that are of any consequence are entirely reliant upon the expertise of people who are not us. And if it's not your area, it's not something you know about if you are, you know, behind the veil of ignorance, which we all are on most subjects. Um, most of us having, you know, if any area of expertise, a very limited and narrow one, and, you know, kind of geniuses having maybe two or three. Uh, expertise is a kind of black box, right? We have to rely on it. Um, it generally works in most circumstances, but we don't understand how it works. And it's difficult for us to evaluate it without becoming experts ourselves. So, one of the big differences, of course, between the way progressive thinks and the way and the way conservatives think has to do with the um, competence in, in expertise. So I think a lot of progressives look at, you know, the Fed and the other um, instruments of fiscal and monetary policy, um, not to say that the Fed's an instrument of fiscal policy, which it isn't, but um, and they think, well, you know, our central bankers and our government economists and the rest of the people have kind of got this stuff figured out. They've managed to fine-tune it, and this is just a black box that now works. And so we can basically put whatever we want to in the black box, and what's going to come out the other side is going to be stable prices. And um, obviously that's not how that stuff works. I think that maybe we need a better um, a better way of putting boundaries around that, you know, saying obviously none of us as individuals and voters or as writers and journalists can actually have expertise in every subject that we cover or write about or have to consider that affect our lives in some way. And so we have to rely on these institutions and we have to rely on these black boxes of expertise, but maybe if we made it, you know, within certain bounds. And, um, and that's the thing that should always give us pause, right? is um yeah we we the fed does a good job um whether you like having a central bank you don't like having a central bank you're a libertarian thinks we ought to be on the gold standard the fed does a good job for the most part um you know it, it did a really pretty good job during the financial crisis that's done a good job on inflation since uh, you know got serious about it in the early 1980s it's a pretty reliable central bank but when you give it a situation that it hasn't had before in a situation that is not very much like other situations that it's had before. That's the point at which you ought to say, well, yes, we trust our experts. 
and um, we were willing to defer to their expertise on all sorts of things. But this is a situation that's new and one in which no one actually has any expertise because it's unprecedented. That kind of thinking, I think, would be maybe a little more useful for us in terms of how we think about you know, our regulators and our, and our policy executors. Do you think that some of the people who are not experts and don't live in that black box, but who have an interest in this area or are directly connected to it, say they're lawmakers, do you think that those people, perhaps because we haven't had this sort of inflation for a long time, forgot or didn't know how bad it is, that thought that it would be worth this if they could extend the child tax credit for a while or get universal pre-K or... Yeah, I think maybe what they thought um, cynically was that we were just going to see asset inflation. You know, we would see a boom in the stock market. We would see a boom in housing prices and that sort of thing, which would irritate people who are trying to buy a house for the first time. But it would please people who already own houses. It would please people who had um, stock portfolios, less so for people who are just getting started in investing. You know, asset inflation, people tend to kind of like. Um, at least, you know, it has it has political consequences that are not nearly as destructive and um, as anger making as consumer price inflation, which is what we are seeing now. And, you know, it does create all sorts of weird incentives, as we were discussing earlier. And I was thinking about it in terms of um, student loans. You know, we're having this very dumb debate about student loan forgiveness because, you know, lawyers need subsidies. but. Um, you know, student loans are already, of course, subsidized, and um, inflation is going to be at 9% this year. So even if you had all the money in the world, uh, if you're paying, you know, 2% interest on your debt at a time when inflation is running at 9%, it makes sense not to pay that debt off. You know, if I could go back and reborrow on my mortgage at 2.5% uh, or whatever we got it at a few years ago, I would borrow all the money I could at two and a half percent, especially when you know, inflation is running at nine percent. Yeah, so this is this is one of the things that interests me. You you said that you wonder if those who were in positions of responsibility merely assumed we would get, say, asset inflation and not uh, more general inflation that everyone would notice. Um, this inflation is annoying everyone. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating. I mean, so I know people all the way up and down the income scale. It's annoying the people at the bottom because milk's You know poor expensive. people? Yeah. What kind of National Review editor are you? <laughs> but milk, gas, etc. is, is yeah. very obvious to people who are just starting out or who are at the bottom of the income scale. Um, people in the middle, I know, are trying to buy a house. Yeah. And they can't. Um, people at the no. top, however much money they have, they can't find a fridge if their fridge goes. Um, that There is a complaint from every single group. But what I find so pernicious about this inflationary environment is that it shatters the consensus on what we would ideally want in an economy. What I mean by that is if you go back three years, Leave aside the macroeconomic questions and our debt and so on. 
there was a broad consensus as to what we wanted, right? We wanted low-ish interest rates, low-ish inflation, a good job market, and a stock market that was doing well, and houses that were affordable. I mean, most people wanted that. Not everyone, but most people would say, yeah, that's what I want. And the question was, which party or politician or policy or you know, roll of the dice from the gods is going to get us there? But although everyone is angry now at the state of the economy, the incentives for all of the people I've mentioned up and down the income scale are really quite different and really quite perverse depending on their particular set of circumstances. I mean, for example, I have a house and I have a mortgage. Now, I bought my house five years ago. It's locked in at a fairly low interest rate. So I don't really care, at least in my primary uh, uh, debt um, source, about interest rates. So I, if I were totally selfish, would want some sort of combination of some inflation to inflate away the debt of my mortgage, uh, interest rates that rose so that inflation didn't get too bad in other areas of the economy that it affected me. Um, and rising housing prices. And rising housing prices, which is what's happened, because yeah. if I decide to sell my house, I would make a big profit on it that would probably massively exceed my mortgage and any interest I'm going to pay on the back end. I mean, that but that's a terrible, terrible thing to want. But also, I mean, that is just on paper what I should want. And I'm always reminded of, of you saying that during the early 1980s, when interest rates hit 18% and you know, American, Britain too, were going through pain in order to get rid of, or bring rather bring inflation under control. There were people who had no debt, but a lot of savings who really liked the economy. <laughs> Best years of their lives. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I, I've told this story and I was talking to a friend of mine's grandmother a while back. This is years ago. And she was one of those people. And she was talking about how much she missed, you know, the economy of the early eighties. And I was thinking, it was a terrible recession. What's the matter with you? And of course, you know, she had had her house paid off since 1960 at that point and had a whole bunch of T-bills in her, uh, you know, investment portfolio, which she was making 17% or 18% on or whatever. And, um, you know, you've got essentially a risk-free investment that's generating double-digit returns, you know, no such thing. Right, and the, the opportunity world. cost to you of an economy that might go into recession or the knock-on effects of inflation are relatively low because you don't have a job. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, this is what I'm saying is that I this is the part of grandmother it, you're talking about, not me. Yes, I've got like yes, 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 yes. The the this is the part of it that I resent that it doesn't just present problems for everybody, but it actually drives people apart and creates all these weird little incentive structures that you know that you find yourself comfortable with rivalrous interests yeah rooting for at the expense of other people's lives yeah um now I, i'll be clear i'm not rooting for you know high interest rates and high any of that i'm just saying that it, it's what is what is nominally good for me in my position would be really bad for someone who was me five years ago um but that that wasn't the case prior to eight nine percent inflation, and and so there's a real social cost to this too that is that is just grotesque. 
Yeah, it's funny how that um, it works. You know, um, West Texas, of course, you've got a lot of oil and gas people out there. And when, you know, if gas prices, let's take it back a few years, go up from, you know, a buck 85 to 250, they're not displeased about that. Right. Um, you know, because they're, I mean, it's reflecting higher uh, oil prices. But um, right now, these guys don't like to see prices going up as much as it is because these are the kind of price hikes that actually can change consumers' behavior. Right. And, um, you know, they don't want to see people uh, buying Teslas and not buying their uh, their oil and gas. And um, so, yeah, it's um, disruptive in all sorts of ways. And um, even though there might be some short-term juice in it for them, you know, in the long term, it's really just disruptive to their business model. And that's kind of an interesting thing, too, where um, there's this critique of big business as being you know, driven by quarterly reports and being, you know, really, really short term. And I read a book about this a couple of years ago that I reviewed. I can't remember what it was called. Um, might've been Tyler Cowen that wrote it, man. I can't remember. Cause obviously I went to an abortion protest and I've lost my memory, but um, big businesses actually are the only ones that really are investing on, you know, a 20 and 25 year uh, schedule because they're the only ones that really can, you know, if you're a startup and you're, you know, expenses this month are coming out of your revenue from the last six weeks. You're not making plans for 20 and 25 years in the future. But if you're Exxon, you are. And if you're Texaco, you are. And, um, you know, if you're Apple, probably you are. If you've got that kind of um, that kind of money in the sort of market you're operating in where you actually need to make long-term investments like that. You know, some some businesses require factories and some don't. And the kind that require factories have to have a different sort of relationship with um, long-term thinking than the ones that don't. And this makes it very difficult for them to do what they need to do. It's the sort of Hayek's thing about um, where recessions come from, you know, where you've got a misallocation of capital and then recession is what happens when businesses reallocate that capital to the way that it should actually be allocated. Um, When you think that, you know, prices are going to be increasing at two, two and a half percent a year, for the next 20 years and suddenly they're at nine percent that really upsets um a lot of investments a lot of long-term business plans yeah um big fan of stability well there's there's no question about that i was thinking there's also the fact that when you get certain surges in demand um companies that you think would enjoy that don't no, because um, sometimes they can't meet the demand. Yeah, so I remember learning that when there's a huge spike in demand for guns, mm-hmm. the most famous gun manufacturers uh, like it up to a point, but also dislike it because they run out of stock relatively quickly, and then people look elsewhere. And they buy right, people who people. wouldn't have considered a different brand or yeah. competitor start looking at them. Yeah. And then once they've bought one, they often buy a second one rather than a, mm-hmm. you know, Remington. Um, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that, but sorry. So they had a hard time at Remington. Yeah, no, I know that they're, they're, yeah. they're in trouble. But um, anyhow, this is 
this is just that's true for all right. sorts of other things too. You know, it's true for um, groceries. There's a lot of consumer research on this. People actually tend to be pretty brand loyal right. on uh, on food. You know, if you buy um, Keebler's uh, graham crackers or whoever makes graham crackers, you don't buy whoever their competitor is. But then people will, you know, switch when the the product that they prefer isn't on the market. Yeah, I mean, this is and a funny thing about big cities behavior. Right. Is is um, I know there are people who buck this trend and good luck to them. But when I first moved to New York, I sort of swallowed whole the arguments people make in favor of New York. It's just <clears> incredible. <throat> I mean, you could go out three in the morning, find scallops. And you say it's just I mean, there's 10,000 restaurants, anything you want. That's well, true, except, you know, my wife and I chose like five of them <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and just went to those ones all the time. And you end up thinking, well, hang on, what's the point in having 10? I may as well have, you know, 80 and go to the five of them, which is, which is what I'll do. But that, that's actually how human beings behave. You, you just do that all the time. It's pick the ones you want. Um, problem is, I suppose, now in New York is half of those restaurants have gone out of business. They have to find yeah. five new ones. But I'm sure you can go still see Wicked five times a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huh. Other inflation stuff we should talk about. Disruptive creates hostility uh, in people's interests. Well, and then there's the obvious one. Uh, but I think the Biden administration is yet to internalize this. And so is the Democratic Party, at least if that Katie Porter story I saw earlier is true. that She said she brought inflation up with her colleagues. And uh, they said to her, it's just not showing up in the polling. Mm. Firstly, it is. Yeah. Secondly, Go ask some better questions. Um, the obvious frustration here is that some people spend, you know, two, three, four years waiting for a race. Then they get it, and it's outstripped by the cost of goods. Yeah. And that makes people crazy. Again, I mm -hmm. think some of our key institutional figures had forgotten or misunderstood misunderestimated as george w bush would say <laughs> how crazy that makes people i mean yeah. i grew up listening to my parents tell me stories about the 70s and so i think i had some comprehension of what this does to a polity but my goodness me i think this has made people more angry and more disillusioned and more hopeless than anything that has happened in politics since I moved to the United States. And it doesn't always feel like that because the sort of circles that we live in, I don't mean physically, although that's true to an extent too, but that we live in in writing and events we go to and newspapers we read and arguments we get involved with, you know, th th there's so much uh, hopelessness <laughs> You know, Donald yeah. Trump made people genuinely crazy, cry himself to sleep, can't talk to my kids or whatever. Most people did not feel like that. Um, they might have hated Trump, they might have loved Trump, but they just didn't think about it in those terms. This has been apocalyptic. I just, I've never yeah. seen anything like it. Well, you know, political parties get, get punished for this corporately. You know, in 1988, Democrats thought they were never going to win the presidency again. They just thought they were done. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the reasons why Bill Clinton got so much uh, slack from his party and was considered such a hero, even though he was 
you know, politically to the right of most of them and involved in a whole bunch of misbehavior and was a pretty slimy person. Um, just the fact that he won at a time when they thought they were never going to win again. Yeah, there's somebody found an article from Norm Ornstein before he went crazy mm. from 1990 in which he describes this sort of this fascinating and immutable fact of American politics that Republicans win the presidency and Democrats control Congress. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Funny criticizing stuff. him. That's what it looked like in 1990. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Things change. This too shall pass, as will this podcast. <laughs>